Welcome, everyone. It is Sunday, May 1st. It is day 66 of the war in Ukraine. I'm Dimitri Perovich, chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. And once again, I'm here with Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. We're also joined today by a very special guest, Nolan Peterson, who is a senior editor for Coffee or Die magazine, and he's really doing some of the best reporting on this war from Kiev. Nolan is also a former U.S. Air Force special operations pilot and a veteran of Iran and Afghanistan. Thank you for joining us today, Nolan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How do you hear me? Great, great. Well, Nolan, maybe we begin with you. Uh, since you're on the ground in Ukraine right now, and you're talking to Ukrainian military folks all the time, you're doing some amazing reporting for Coffee or Die. If you're not following Nolan on Twitter and his writing in the magazine, you're missing out. Uh, can you talk to us what the situation is like morale-wise um, uh, from the people you talk to, both in the military and just regular civilians? Obviously, the Ukrainians have uh, won a major battle uh, a few weeks ago in Kiev with the Russian pullout, but the war is far from over. How are people feeling on the ground? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I know after more than two months of war, uh, you know, it feels like life here in Kiev is uh, just sort of slowly inching back to normal. We've had a lot of foreign leaders come to visit, such as Speaker Pelosi yesterday. You know, restaurants and bars and gyms are reopening. Even Uber is operational now. Uh, so I guess in some ways, uh, you know, it, it feels like life here in Kiev is kind of returning to that status quo before February 24th, when for eight years, Kiev, you know, felt relatively quarantined from the effects of fighting in the Donbass. Uh, but of course, we still live under a missile threat, as does uh, the entire country. And just last Thursday, I remember we had more missile strikes here in Kiev during the visit by the UN uh, Secretary General. Uh, but I think if anyone, you know, just parachuted into Kiev or any city in Ukraine these days uh, from abroad, you'd probably be uh, somewhat taken aback uh, just how calmly people now treat the air raid sirens and the threat of missiles, uh, which has just sort of become part of the of day-to-day -day life. And, but that said, you know, from my point of view, uh, there is minimal war fatigue in Ukraine uh, among both civilians and soldiers. Um, and that will to fight, that continued will to fight is sustained by many things. And um, I think there are three big ones. The first are Ukraine's battlefield successes, uh, like you said, especially here in the Battle of Kiev, as well as other like sort of defiant stands, uh, particularly uh, that of the defenders in Mariupol. Uh, the ongoing influx of foreign weapons also uh, sends a strong message of solidarity to Ukrainians and helps boost their morale. And in fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, I met a 67-year-old woman uh, who had survived some of the worst of the fighting in her village of Moshun on the outskirts of Kiev, which was actually occupied by Russians. And uh, she told me that she wanted to name her grandkids Bayraktar and Javelin, which I think just is a good case study or a good example of uh, sort of the, the impact of those foreign deliveries and the morale of people here. Uh, but I think, you know, the third uh, big motivator and probably above all are Russia's atrocities. And I've spent a lot of time over the past month on Kiev's outskirts uh, to see the, you know, sort of the 
the very horrible after effects of, of what Russia did when they occupied those territories. And it's just, you know, it's, you know, there's things that you just never forget after you've seen them. Uh, but I think there's definitely a sense now among Ukrainians after those atrocities uh, that they're not just fighting for their freedom, uh, but they're also fighting for their survival. And basically, the longer the war goes on, uh, the more Russia incriminates itself in the eyes of Ukrainians and, and thereby hardens their will to fight. Uh, so now, you know, that we're in this so-called second phase of the war uh, with Russia's grinding offensives in the south and east, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people saying that Russia is you know, looking for a war of attrition at this point. Uh, but, you know, from my point of view, I actually think an attritional war uh, could, in some ways, uh, be to Ukraine's advantage. To Ukraine's advantage, as far as personnel, uh, I recently reported on how many of Kiev's territorial defense troops have now redeployed to the south and east. And these soldiers, of course, you know they're relatively untrained, uh, but they are now combat tested after the Battle of Kiev, and their utility on the front lines is not necessarily for you know like forward combat operations. Uh, but it's to take over many of those mundane day-to-day tasks that can drain manpower from the regular army, like pulling guard duty, manning checkpoints, rear lines of defense, things like that. So in my opinion, those territorial defense troops, which have shifted to the active battlefields in the south and east, are something of a force multiplier because they are freeing up many of the more highly trained regular army soldiers uh, to actually be out there in the thick of things hunting down Russian armor and also allowing them more opportunities maybe to rotate off the battlefields uh, as the war goes on. And, and then, you know, when it comes to weapon and equip, uh, weapons and equipment, Ukraine is receiving a steady influx of deliveries uh, from its foreign partners and uh, with lots more to come. And now it looks like um, the frontline troops I speak with, they tell me that their units are just stacked right now with uh, Western anti-tank weapons uh, but at this point, they still haven't seen much in the way of new artillery. And uh, they do say that they uh, really need more drones uh, for the current fight in the south and east. Uh, and of course, a war of attrition also depends on an army maintaining the will to fight. And I think you know it's probably beating a dead horse at this point, but it's pretty clear uh, that the Ukrainians' morale and fighting spirit uh, far surpasses that uh, of the Russians'. Um, Thanks, so. Are, are they yeah. telling you, are they getting some of the heavy armor, tanks, um, anti-artillery radar, and uh, and the like, or is that not coming in yet? It seems like those things have not made it out to the front lines in appreciable numbers. Uh, they're getting a lot of the basic things like body armor and ammunition and whatnot, uh, but it seems like those sort of big ticket items haven't really trickled out to the front lines uh, yet. Um, but and, I think, do, you, no, do just, you know? Do you know if the railways work from uh, all the way into the Donbass? I mean, getting getting the equipment there may, may be a, quite a logistical challenge, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you could go online and order railway tickets to Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Dnipro right now. So I'm assuming that the railways are also operational uh, to take equipment out there. Um, but you know, I, I think one point I'd like to make: super interested in talking to the soldiers out there on the front lines. Um, is the way they're fighting against the Russians right now. Um, and they're, it, they have this like really mobile strategy where they're playing hard to get, so to speak. 
And it's sort of allowing the Russians to exhaust themselves as they try and carry out this offensive. So the Ukrainians have defensive the lines where they can build them, but they aren't putting everything into those positions and they're not committing all their troops to those trenches. Uh, in fact, those lines are usually backed up by these very mobile units that are shooting and scooting, <laughs> so to speak, against whatever targets they can find. Uh, one soldier I interviewed, he called it hybrid conventional warfare, to use the uh, hybrid <laughs> warfare term, which I know we all hate. Um, uh, but anyway, basically, the Ukrainians aren't committing everything to maintaining these lines. Instead, they're willing to give up those positions if it means that they're uh, getting more targets for those mobile sort of tank killing units to hit. And then once the Russian forces get sucked in, so to speak, those mobile Ukrainian units are hitting them and usually forcing the Russians to pull back. Uh, one Ukrainian soldier called it sort of a yo-yo effect uh, on the battlefield. And Ukrainian defensive positions, by the way, are only fortified in one direction facing the Russians. So if the Russians take over the Ukrainian positions, you know, those exposed rear areas now are exposed to the Ukrainian forces uh, that just pulled back. Uh, so anyway, these really mobile sort of dynamic tactics on the battlefield, I think really, you know, they underscore how, you know, the U Ukrainians have prioritized creativity and the autonomy of their frontline units over the past eight years. And now they are, you know, quite literally uh, running circles around the Russians. That's very helpful. I'm curious, when you talk to the regular people just out on the street in Kiev, do you ever mm -hmm. ask them what they think a win would look like in this situation? What are they expecting? Obviously, they've preserved their country. They, they've preserved their government that they've democratically elected. Um, you know, they may win the fight for the Donbass, but they are, are they expecting sort of to push the Russians all the way back to the 2014 lines? Are they expecting to even take DNR and LNR? Um, and, and go back to before 2014? Do they have aspirations yeah. even after Crimea? Like, do, what do the regular people think is achievable here? Yeah, I think, you know, it definitely depends on who you talk to. I think the more, you know, like, gung-ho types would say, like, you know, we're going to fight and get back all the Donbass, and then we're going to go on to Crimea. But I think the more sober-minded people with probably more practical outlook on things, I think the general consensus is just to fight back to the, you know, the February 23rd status quo and get back to that point. So take um, back like Mariupol, for example. That would be the expectation. But then again, you know, I, you know, just from my point of view, that's going to be tough. The Ukrainians are fighting a really smart defensive war right now. But then when you flip the tables and suddenly they're trying to take back terrain against the Russians, uh, it's going to be a, a whole different ball game. So I think that, you know, you, you hear a lot of people saying we want to get back to the February 23rd status quo, but that could be a tall order. Got it. And, and what are people's attitudes towards the Russians, not just the Russian military, but the Russian population? Do they view everyone now as an enemy? Is this entrenched now, even in the East, where traditionally you had a population that had relatives in Russia and so forth uh, in a much more positive situation? Is that all gone after Bucha and all the atrocities that they're seeing in Mariupol and elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think Russia, you know, in my lifetime, in our lifetimes has forever lost any, any shred of influence in Ukraine. I mean, it's just, 
you know, my, my wife who's Ukrainian, her family lives in a Russian speaking area. And prior to February 24th, you know, you could walk around her hometown and, you know, you know, there's people weren't like, they weren't pro Russian, <laughs> but they were kind of on the fence, you could say. But now when I've gone back down there after February 24th during the war, it's just pure hatred, pure hatred toward the Russians. And I think, you know, the ultimate irony, and you know, most of us, it's just clear to us, but the ultimate irony of this war is that the people that Russia pretends to help, that they're, they pretend to be here to liberate, you know, the Russian speaking population in Ukraine are the ones suffering the most, you know, in Kharkiv, Mariupol, and other places in the Donbass, they are really suffering and they've gone through hell. And so I think that even those populations, which might have had some sort of lingering affinity uh, for Russia, it just, it's gone and it will forever be gone. Moreover, families are being ripped apart right now because many Ukrainians communicate with their families in Russia who are just sort of glamored by the propaganda and they believe, you know, Russia's lies about the reasons for the war and the way it's being carried out. Uh, and so that I think that Ukrainians, they, you know, they're willing to sever family ties because their hatred for Russia now runs so deep. So, you know, whatever political goals Russia may have started this war with, I think their brutal tactics uh, have made the ultimate achievement of those goals an impossibility. Right. Have you talked to anyone? I'm curious in, in Kherson. Obviously, there's a lot going on there right now. The Russians have activated their propaganda, uh, turning on the, the, the news channels there. They're trying to institute uh, Russian currency, the ruble, instead of the grivna uh, uh, in Kherson. And, and there's um, talk about uh, potentially doing a referendum to create another statelet there. Have you gotten a hold of anyone there that uh, is giving you the real-time update on what's happening on the ground? Not among the civilians, but the soldiers around Kherson I have been in touch with. And from what I gather, that's probably the most likely vector for a successful Ukrainian kind of regain of territory, so to speak, on the battlefield. Um, but clearly, I mean, we've all seen those really brave and courageous acts of defiance in Kherson. Um, and, you know, there are stories of resistance now operating in the cities or, you know, the, from the shadows. Um, so I think that Kherson um, is one potential place where Ukrainians could gain ground, um, both from you know, the military perspective, they might have a better chance in that direction, but also because the population there uh, is clearly, uh, you know, pro-Ukrainian. And, and they're, I think that Russia will have their hands full trying to maintain their grip on that place in the long run. I think that the, the presence of an underground resistance movement there is something that if Russia is able to maintain, maintain control is going to be a big problem for them moving forward. Right. And uh, one other question, and I'll, I'll go to Mike here in a second, but um, mm -hmm. you've written a, a bunch of great things on the Ukrainian military transformation over the last eight years. How, of course, before 2014, it was very much a Soviet-style military, um, not unlike the Russians, uh, despite their reforms, preserving much of their sort of doctrine for fighting. But the Ukrainians really, with Western help and training, have changed a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that, about some of those transformations that you've now seen paying off on the battlefield? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when I first arrived in Ukraine in 2014, you know, you saw soldiers out there with flip-flops on, uh, they had Kalashnikovs from the 50s and 60s, you know, just, it was a really ragtag force. 
And then now eight years later, we see, you know, what they've become. Um, you know, I've had the chance to go out to Western Ukraine since 2015 when the U S began training Ukrainians out there. And over the years, you know, just the transformation of the Ukrainian troops has been remarkable. Um, not only in their sort of the command climate where they, you know, they push decision-making down to the bottom and allow the frontline troops to make decisions on their own without some higher commander far removed from the battlefield, giving them a play-by-play. Um, that flexibility was something that really kind of came of age in the Donbass conflict uh, where a lot of uh, units, you know, were, had the ability to make their own decisions in combat and were allowed to be creative. You know, the Ukrainians have always had a disadvantage in technology and equipment and to get around that, you know, they've, you know, I, I use the term like a MacGyvered army over the years where they, you know, they're using drones. They were, they would take empty monster energy drink cans and fill it with explosives, use 3d printers to make fins and then make these bombs that they were using that they're dropping on their enemies. Um, you know, they were hacking into power, power lines to get energy to their bases and all just a whole plethora of, of things that they were doing uh, as they learned to just be adaptive to the battlefield environment. And I think that now, you know, we see the, the dividends, the payoff in that, where they have been able to be so flexible and dynamic on the battlefield, whereas the Russians are, you know, very much incapable of acting that way. And also that creativity um, has created, I think, a mindset and a, a climate within the Ukrainian military, which has allowed them uh, to uh, take hold of all these new and unfamiliar Western weapons and very quickly learn to use them and incorporate them onto the battlefield in, in a very lethal way. And I think that, you know, even the U.S. military, I mean, as a pilot, you know, we would train for years before we ever got close to combat environment. But the Ukrainians, within a matter of days, you hand them a new weapon, they're out there and they're destroying Russian tanks. Uh, so I think that, you know, this this climate that has fostered, that's been fostered over the past eight years has not only, you know, allowed them to perform brilliantly on the battlefield to date, uh, but also to take maximum advantage of the weapons that they're getting. And that's not just for the ground troops, but I've also interviewed uh, a Ukrainian MiG-29 pilot. And, you know, just the things that he told me about how they were, uh, the risks they were taking, the in it, sort of the innovative tactics that they were devising on the fly in combat to get around their technological disadvantage with the Russians. I mean, I just, Any, anything you can share that won't compromise OPSEC? Ah... Uh... <laughs> When I write the book about it, yeah, I can reveal all, all of right, it. Fair enough. But I think, yeah, I mean, flying really low, really fast, and choosing the time and place of the engagements. I think maybe one thing that you know they're not out there trying to protect everything. They're they're waiting for the perfect moment to take advantage of the Russians being stupid, and um, and so I think that that's you know that in one way has given them the ability to hold their own. And how much do you think the, uh, in terms of the ground forces, the American and other Western volunteers have helped? You, you wrote on Twitter today about the two Americans that have been wounded in, a, mm-hmm. in an attempted tank ambush. Um, 
you know, how many of those volunteers are actually on the front lines, do you think, and, and how much help are they providing? Oh, well, there are quite a few. And I think it's interesting that the, you know, the Ukrainians, uh, they did sort of concentrate the foreigners into their own units <laughs> and given them sort of specific tasks on the battlefield. But, you know, some some Americans show up with knowledge of how to use javelins, for example, and so that Ukrainians take advantage of that and have them out there spreading that knowledge. Because like I said, you know, those anti-tank weapons are just everywhere in the front lines right now. If there's one thing the Ukrainians do not lack on the front lines, it is anti-tank weapons. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the Americans training is, is obviously, you know, especially when you have former special operations troops out there in the front lines. Uh, that said, um, you know, one thing I definitely noticed when I observed the training in Yavari, the U.S. training mission in Western Ukraine that began in 2015, you know, when it comes to modern conventional combat, uh, you know, the experience really lies with the Ukrainians at this point. And clearly when this war is over, I think the Ukrainians are going to be very much in demand for all the lessons they've learned on the battlefield. So, you know, I think the obviously the Americans come with you know, very high level skill sets, and they're certainly useful. But at the same time, you know, I can't really think of another army or military in the world um, that has as much, you know, sort of modern combat experience as the Ukrainians. So I, you know, I think apart from the sort of the, the command uh, model, you know, divorce, you know, sort of pushing decision-making to the bottom, which the U.S. really helped the Ukrainians with over the, over the years. When it comes to just sort of basic combat skills, you know, I, I don't think that the, the American presence out there really is giving the Ukrainians anything they didn't have on their own. Interesting. Um, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you on a few other things, Nolan. But, um, Mike, let me go to you. Uh, maybe let's start us off with an update of... What, what do you see happening right now with the fight for the Donbass, how that's looking, um, and um, any insights you have from uh, the last week? I mean, it's a pretty large battlefield to look around, spanning all the way from essentially Kharkiv down to Zaporizhia. So I guess we'll sort of do a quick tour de force. What's been happening in the past week is you have Ukrainian forces slowly taking back territory kind of north and east of Kharkiv. And uh, the Russian side there is very lightly manned, the sort of badly mauled units from 14th Army Corps and Northern Fleet. Uh, and the Ukrainian forces are steadily counterattacking there and eventually trying to put themselves more and more in a position to threaten the Russian ground lines of communications running down towards Azum. You have a sizable Russian force in around the Zoom pushing south and southwest of it, partly towards Barvinkova in order to cut the ground lines of communications on the Ukrainian side, running to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. You have a sizable concentration, I think, also in Diman. And you essentially in the north, seeing Russian forces steadily make advances, very, very sort of uh, slow, frustrated battles. Ukrainians are essentially trying to do a mobile defense I don't think I'm quite on the same page with Nolan of Ukrainians running circles around Russia. And I, I probably wouldn't take it that far, to be very honest, that the battle map doesn't reflect that very much. But um, I think this overall, this contest is still pretty contingent. The general so, correlation... so you, you, th you think the Ukrainians are fighting more from static defensive positions? No, I, I actually I actually think they are avoiding a set piece battle. And I think in part because 
even though the general uh, balance of forces in the war favors Ukraine, in the immediate battle space up there in the north, it may not. And Russia may have a much higher concentration of fires. And more importantly, the Russians have ammo. And it's not clear where the Ukrainians stand on ammo. And artillery is the most decisive element of this war. It ain't javelins. Javelins are important. And laws are important. But Ukraine has won through with one main uh, successful use of artillery. Some ways better use of artillery than Russia. And the Russian military struggled to suppress Ukrainian use of artillery over time. So that's that would be pretty, to be honest, that's been fairly decisive overall. If we look in this conflict, uh, most Russian casualties are probably due to artillery much more so than uh, anti-tank guided missiles. They'll slow down Russian formations and they pick them apart. As they filter out, but in general, artillery has been devastating in this war. So, if you look uh, at the battle space, you'll see that Russian forces are trying to kind of cut the Donbass into a couple pieces. They are trying to cut Slavyansk and Krematorsk off from ground lines of communications to the west and also from Ukrainian forces in Severodonetsk. And they're trying to cut Severodonetsk as a big salient as well. And you see Russian forces trying to push through in the north through a town called Liman. And further south through a town called Papasna to essentially see if they can steadily punctuate Ukrainian lines and create, you know, one envelopment there and another one uh, around Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. And then if you go further along the south, you see generally sort of Russian strikes uh, against Avdiivka. This is along the, the long-standing line of control now in the Donbass. And, you know, I think if you look further southwest, you see a lot of fixing attacks uh, across Zaporizhia, uh, there's been sort of a, a, a long, uh, sustained series of fights um, there f- uh, over a range of towns. There's about four of them that are important to holding the line and to Russian forces trying to break through and trying to take at least get access to the southern part of the Donbass from those advances. Okay, beyond that... <sighs> You know, you have them trying to consolidate a perimeter around Kherson City, west of the riverbank, and pick strikes and fights there. It, in general, I describe the effort this way. The Russian military is definitely approaching this fight a bit smarter than they did the first phase of the war. There's a lot more reconnaissance and force, followed up by heavy use of artillery and airstrikes. And so they're fighting in a much more sustainable fashion, taking fewer casualties, uh, and, and suffering less attrition. On the other hand, Ukraine's defending pretty smartly. There isn't sort of any visible general large breakthroughs. I don't think those are necessarily going to happen. And the battle line, if it shifts, is going to shift fairly slowly and steadily. And Ukrainians are also being smart about not being pinned where they have a worse correlation of forces. So overall, it's still pretty contingent. I mean, you can see Definitely Russian military making some gains, but you can also see them getting exhausted over time as this fight goes on. And they don't have reserves mobilized. Uh, They've suffered considerable losses in manpower and equipment, whereas Ukraine has generated very sizable reserves. And eventually Western equipment and all the equipment that's been supplied by European states that essentially had maybe late-gen warship pack gear that's going to be used to turn Ukraine's manpower advantage into actual brigades, generated brigades with combat power. Um, that's where we are. I'm, I'm not going to repeat what I've said in previous chats, which is essentially that at peacetime strength, I'm very confident that for Russia, this is likely going to be 
the last major offensive, no matter what happens in this particular fight, because without mobilization, they're not in a position to sustain a war, whether it's a war of attrition, whether it's a more positional fight, however you want to call it. Got it. Very helpful. A couple of follow-up questions, Mike. Um, so with regards to Mariupol, um, are we now starting to see major units from Mariupol move into the fight for the Donbass now that they've pinned the Ukrainian defenders at the Azovstal uh, uh, steel plant? Yeah, that's been the case for, well, well I think for a week now. Um, they're still fighting around Azovstal. Uh, there's still Russian units trying to inch and take territory around it. You can see a lot of combat videos from from different parts of that sector. But I think uh, what forces they could, they've already shifted from Mariupol north to reinforce the southern military district units' attacks. I don't think southern military district has a sufficient combat power for any major breakthrough in the south, though. I think that's primarily a front that they're, where they're trying to fix Ukrainian forces so they can focus on kind of the north and the eastern part of the Donbass. Is there any danger to other cities in Zaporozhye, uh, Krivarykh, uh, you know, Dnipro? Uh, do you see any movements towards those those places? Yeah, I got to tell you, from my point of view, not really. I mean, Zaporizhia is probably the most vulnerable. Right now, there's a series of fights going, you know, across the line from uh, Arihiv, uh, Huyapoya, and, and the town to watch for in the south has been the focus point of a lot of fighting is Vyika uh, Novosilka, Russian forces have been trying to take it for weeks. It's a major junction town, and and Ukrainians have been defending it for that reason, because I think the Russian military probably feels if they can take it, then they have access to more, much more of the battle map and potential for breakthrough there. But so far, they haven't been successful. So I wouldn't I wouldn't watch what happens in Zaporizhia. I would watch a town that probably nobody's ever heard of called Vyika Novosilka, because... Uh, there's a lot more fighting there, and it's much more relevant to this battlefield. Got it. Uh, now, an interesting development has appeared in the last um, 72, 48 hours, um, and even uh, we've had an update today, which is that um, Valery Gerasimov, uh, the chief of staff of the Russian military, um, famous for the really non-existent Gerasimov doctrine um, that has, has been uh, uh, you know, touted in the West for many years now, uh, but was not really doctrine, uh, but that uh, he went to Zoom uh, to apparently you know, confer with the frontline generals there, and the Ukrainians are claiming as of uh, earlier today that they uh, managed to do a strike on the headquarters in a Zoom and kill a number of generals and, and apparently wound Gerasimov himself. Uh, what do you make of this news, Mike, and particularly the fact that uh, Gerasimov appears to have gone directly to the front lines? How unusual is that? Okay, well, I obviously don't know what happened, so I can only speculate here. Um, one, it, it looks likely that he was uh, in or around the Zoom, and maybe he was there for a meeting, or maybe he was there to see what's going on in person. Two, maybe he was wounded, maybe he wasn't. Uh, there's a lot of speculation on that front. Either way, it's not going to affect the campaign. It's just an, an interesting news story. Um, I don't make much of it, to be honest. There's still a lot about this that's unconfirmed. You know, just because everybody's on Twitter is talking about it doesn't, doesn't mean we have any hard facts about what happened. But it sounds like Ukrainian military got good intel once again on where a Russian command point was and was able to conduct a strike against it. 
yeah, uh, fascinating. And obviously, there were stories this week about how U.S. Intel may be playing a huge role in this fight, providing potentially real-time intelligence for targeting uh, to the Ukrainians. There was another um, strike on Odessa Airport today, uh, damaging the runways. And before that strike, a number of planes uh, were seen in the sky taking off from that airport. Um, so Ukrainians uh, may have gotten advanced knowledge that that strike was coming. Really phenomenal use of intelligence there. Uh, but let, let me just push you on the Grasimov story uh, one more time, Mike. Uh, I mean, if the chairman of Joint Chiefs goes to the front lines of a major fight uh, uh, where U.S. forces are, that's a big story. I mean, uh, you know, in this day and age with telecommunications, video conference, et cetera, is this a representative of the fact that things aren't going well, that he's not happy with the uh, potentially pace of operations there, that he felt that he needed to fly to Zoom uh, and put himself in danger uh, uh, to confer with, the, with his folks directly? Maybe, but probably not. For all you know, he was there to hand out some medals or something else. Like he, we don't know what's why Gerasim. He, he couldn't do that from Belgorod. He had to go to. Who his knows? Zoo. Who knows? I mean, if you're asking whether Russia has the telecommunications technology to do it remotely, Dmitry, they do. Okay, trust me. They also do PowerPoint. They're just as afflicted by that as we are. So they have command centers. They have a director in military operations. No, he doesn't need to be physically there. So it's a good question as to what he was doing down in Azuma, why he went all the way down there as opposed to, let's say, Belgorod. Um, obviously, people could have just come up from Azuma and met him somewhere else in Russia. It's not that far away. Right. Let me, let me ask you uh, about artillery. You mentioned this already, that the Ukrainians are uh, using artillery very effectively, uh, using UAVs for um, uh, targeting uh, and fixing artillery strikes. Um, why aren't the Russians doing a better job of it, given that their entire doctrine is oriented towards heavy use of artillery. Yeah, that's actually that's actually a great question. Um, so when this first started out, you saw Ukrainian military actually do recon fire a lot better, uh, using drones, setting up ambushes to tie down Russian formations, and then slacking them with artillery. Okay, um, and 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 it also does feel like Ukraine is benefiting from a lot of let's put it like higher level intelligence about Russian force presence and movements that, you know, I see increasingly might be, might be coming out uh, in, in news stories. But on the Russian side, um, you definitely see that early on really bad force employment and organization. Part of that, of course, was them thinking they were doing a quick regime change operation and not organizing anything for a real war and, and not telling the troops they're going to be sent into this kind of fight. Uh, part of it is sort of force composition. It looks like they have, they have that artillery attachments in the larger BTGs, but it's still not clear what that force structure looks like. I think there are a lot of assumptions early on into the war that may not prove true, for example, about the real structure of some BTGs, how much they vary, because it looks like they vary dramatically, um, probably between 400 to 900 uh, men per, per BTG. And more importantly, unemployment. So you didn't see for the first week the Russian military really doing a lot of this recon fire, recon strike stuff they've been talking about for years. People like me have been covering writing because we saw them using it in Ukraine in 2014, 2015 and saw them using it in uh, Syria as well. And only later on did you start seeing Russian drones appear, Russian drones doing actual targeting for Russian artillery, things like that. And more importantly, Russian artillery mass. But I think one of the things you definitely see is at first – 
Rusher may be able to use artillery effectively, but they're not that great at counter-battery fire, and they're not that good at suppression. They haven't been able to effectively suppress Ukraine artillery. That's been one of the main faults, uh, of at least at the tactical level, of the Russian military. Ukraine has used artillery very effectively. I'm sorry that despite all the kind of TikTok imagery of this being a javelin and N-law heavy war, the real success story more often than not is Soviet tube artillery that they inherited and they're just using it better. Um, obviously, the defender has big advantages in ground warfare. That part's true, too. And we should comment on that. Um, but nonetheless, you, you see Russia's not performing nearly as well. Why, as always, will take time to unpack. I hardly have the answers to half, uh, half the questions. But the very least, Dmitry, at least this far into the war, we're starting to ask more and more of what, what the right questions should be. Okay. Um, a lot has been made about May 9th, uh, the potential declaration of victory. There are apparently now posters in Russia talking about Victory Day 1945-2022. Uh, there's, they're being plastered all over Moscow. Uh, it's eight days out from now. Um, any chance that this battle is going to be over one way or another by May 9th in your estimation, Mike? No, in my estimation, no. And I'm not attached to May 9th as a date. I'm not sure why other people are so attached to it. If nothing, if this war doesn't end on May 8th, I assure you it'll keep going beyond that. Okay. Just with high confidence. I also don't think Putin's necessarily going to announce anything on May 9th either. Um, and I, I don't know what, what else to say. Maybe we'll see Gerasimov there with, you know, some bandages on his arm or something from being wounded in the Zoom. That's about the only thing I can add to the May 9th conversation. It's a puzzling fixation. Yeah. Uh, well, apparently it was, it was actually a leg wound, uh, according to the reports. So, uh, maybe he'll be limping. Um, uh, although I do think that on May 9th, you know, Putin is going to give a speech and, uh, We'll probably talk about successes like Mariupol um, and potentially, you know, some villages in Donbass that, that they may have taken um, and, and, and broader sort of suppression of, quote unquote, Nazis and the like. Um, one, one, one more question, Mike, um, that I thought might be interesting at a tactical level. Our friend Rob Lee posted a video today of the first T-90M uh, tank uh, um, that, that he has seen on the battlefield so far, obviously a modernized uh, tank. Uh, a lot of what we've seen have been much older equipment going into this war. Is this a reflection of maybe the Russians have kept their more modern equipment out of this fight for fear of potentially needing it for NATO fight if NATO decides to engage? Um, and now they're maybe moving some of that more modern equipment uh, into the Donbass. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think if anything, it's a reflection of the fact that they've lost a lot of equipment. And T-90M is the best tank in the Russian military by far. Uh, they only have one battalion of those. At best, maybe two, right? I haven't checked my count lately. And a lot of their units have been pretty badly mauled in the tank and heavy armored fighting vehicle category, right? If we sort of include tanks infantry fighting vehicles and vehicles of that type, they probably lost 15 to 20% of active inventory, which is pretty significant. Um, I, I don't think that things like T-90M are being, are being sent in now because uh, necessarily because they were held in reserve. I think they actually need some of these, they need some of these units. It, it's definitely a much better tank, but you know, 
at the quantities of which they have available, it's not going to make a difference. And, you know, the main issue with tanks that they've been using isn't, isn't the level of modernization in this war. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, many of these tanks are, are quite vulnerable to the types of missiles we provided. Tanks used unsupported is the biggest problem. As I've spoken before uh, in our discussions about the fact that the Russian military's problem is not tanks. It is a lack of infantry, a lack of infantry to support armor. And part of that is by design. And part of that because of readiness levels and how they're trying to use this force. When you get down to the battlefield, they don't have much infantry to dismount to support either fights in urban environments or their vehicles, especially when they get into ambushes or to screen them. And some of those big choices and some of the big problems they're having in terms of force availability have, have really come to bite them in this war. Got it. Uh, Nolan also talked about some of the innovative tactics that the Ukrainian Air Force pilots are using today, flying low and, and what have you. Um, uh, w- what role is the Air Force, either Ukrainian or the Russian Air Force, playing in this new phase um, for the fight of the Donbass? Is it still mostly ground war? I mean, so on the Russian side, you definitely see air power being used more and more, but it's not being used very strategically, right? First, they tried to fight for local air superiority, which is very difficult, I think, um, and and easy to lose aircraft to ambushes by air defense. Uh, they've fought a war of attrition with Ukrainian air defense, a lot of the time using artillery and drones actually to take it out because Russian air power tries to, to take on the seed mission, but isn't that good at it. Um, in, increasingly, you see them trying to do close air support, but the challenge, of course, is proliferation of man pads on the battlefield, right? Short-range air defenses and man-portable air defenses makes it very hard for Russian helicopters to be effective, makes it a very dangerous mission for the dated attack-type aircraft like Su-25 that they have. Um, a lot of Russian pilots, as you can see from how they're employing the Air Force, they are using, in some cases, precision guide munitions, but there's definitely issues there with both technical level on Su-34s of, of the targeting system and of, of training of pilots to be able to use it. So, air power is in the fight. This is the part that's the least known about open sources, and I'm going to be very frank. I see a lot of claims about it in social media by folks, and I will tell you, from my point of view, this is the least known part of what's been happening in this war. And we just need to approach it with a great deal of humility because everything I, everything I'm saying is, is just um, based on glimpses of the fight. Now on the Ukrainian side of the battlefield, I can't add too much. I mean, okay, if Ukrainian air force is flying low, so is the Russian air force and Ukrainian aircraft are pretty short on rank. So I'm not sure what they're engaging. Um, no one, you know, you're welcome to ask no one to restrike the target. Uh, I've, I've not seen much of the Ukrainian air force, uh, in the second sort of month of this war. And maybe that's just because a lot of the video feeds and whatnot are being kept off the internet for OPSEC purposes. And that's fine. But in general, you know, Russia's lost probably around what, 25 aircraft and, uh, 40 plus helicopters, 16 of them lost at Tursone, uh, on the at the airport uh ukraine's air force looks like it lost maybe around 16 17 aircraft in this fight which is pretty significant given the size difference between these two air forces but that's about all and i'm going off of org's blogs number here when i say that so that's all 
Boson based figures. I don't know if Nolan wants to add anything. This is the this is the one aspect of the conflict in general that's very hard to judge, um, just based on what's available in in the information sources out there. No, Nolan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing that I mean, this is not like necessarily innovative or anything, but the Ukrainians are conducting combat air patrols every day over the parts of the country where they can fly somewhat safely. And when they do that, you know, they're not skimming the deck. They're actually up at altitude. And they are, I mean, as, as this, the pilot described it to me, they're pushing the Russians back by can maintaining a presence over certain parts of the country where they're not going to be affected by any you know, Russian ground air defenses near the borders. Um, so, you know, the Russians do have sort of control over the air, around the south and east where they control the ground but over the vast majority of ukrainian airspace you know it's still contested and i think a big part of that is just the fact that ukrainians are still going up every day and you know sort of a you know a through line to this war (laughs) is sort of the the lackluster training of the russians and i think that's one thing that the ukrainian pilot did comment to me on is that the russians didn't seem to be able to uh, operate effectively uh, in inclement weather uh, at night, you know, in just sort of basic, you know, combat uh, environment that uh, you know, combat pilots should be able to operate in. They seem to struggle with that. And so his theory, his idea was that the Russians just got really sloppy and really lazy after flying in Syria and um, where there's basically no, no threat from the air or from the ground. And they just weren't prepared for any resistance from the Ukrainian Air Force. And so, you know, just by virtue of staying in the fight, I think the Ukrainians are holding the ground. Um, real quickly about the drones. Um, you know, one thing, and again, you know, as a, as a journalist, you only get sort of a soda straw view of the battlefield. But I hear a lot from the soldiers I interview on the ground that in the south and east right now, the Russian drone presence is prolific. And it kind of puts the fear of God in a lot of Ukrainians because they're out there and all the time they're healing drones overhead. And those drones are clearly directing artillery. I mean, one Ukrainian soldier I interviewed, he was pretty badly, uh, pretty badly uh, hurt by artillery, artillery fire. And right before, you know, it hit, there was a Russian Orlan drone orbiting overhead, clearly uh, directing the fire. So the Russians use of drones right now in the South and East, is uh is extremely prolific based on the soldiers I'm talking to, and it does, uh, you know, it makes it a pretty harrowing experience in the battlefield with the artillery and the drones. You know, there's 24 per seven, uh, you're under threat, and so that does a psychological aspect to that. Which, you know, as Mike, um, you know, alluded to, the Ukrainians are also fighting heavily with artillery, so I imagine that that psychological impact is being reflected on the Russians too. Speaking of drunk, Mike, uh, what do you see in terms of TB2 use lately by the Ukrainians? TB2 is one of the you know, more interesting questions also about air power employment in this war, right? Um, Ukrainians had some pretty good success with TB2s during the first month. Saw quite a few videos, saw some good strikes. Uh, was even surprised, for example, people like me assumed, of course, that Russia would start this war out with an air campaign, uh, planning for a serious fight and would try to take out Ukrainian TB2s and the Ukrainian Air Force on the ground. 
that didn't really happen beyond kind of the initial set of uh, cruise missile and tactical ballistic missile strikes that you saw in the first couple of days. Uh, a lot of things that folks predicted in terms of what the Russian actual plan would be didn't didn't happen. So Ukraine had the ability to use TB2s, uh, and, and they used them with some success. That said, you also saw a lot of the videos drop off precipitously in the past month, and now you're increasingly seeing TB2s, uh, they're being shot down in some regard over Russia. So you see that Ukraine's probably using TB2s to conduct some of these deep strikes against critical infrastructure in Russia. And some of the ones being shot down look like they're brand new batches, as they were made after the war started by Turkey, which gives us a little bit of an insight as to the fact that Ukraine likely ordered more TB2s and it started to get additional shipments. What's happened with the TB2s, though, again, this is a very good case in point about why you've not seen a, a thread or something written on air power by folks like me, at least. Depending on who you talk to, Ukraine has either lost very few TB2s or basically all of them from the initial number that they had going into the war. And that gigantic delta of perspectives of people who kind of claim to uh, have knowledge in the space gives me a lot of pause. Right. So because of that, I'm reticent to speak uh, not as to what the TB2s have been able to achieve, but more about sort of uh, kill loss ratios and things of that nature and, and the overall combat effectiveness of the TB2. OK, and I know TB2 has a particular avid fan base out there online, so please do not come after me. But yeah, that's the entire country of Turkey uh, maybe coming after you. Um, I'm sure that their uh, export numbers of TB2s, both to Ukraine and everywhere else, are going through the roof right now. Uh, Mike, one more question here. Um, and we touched on this last week as well, but you, you continue to see a lot of quote unquote accidents and explosions taking place uh, in border cities in Russia. Just today, you had another explosion in Bel- Belgorod. Uh, there's a report of a bridge, rail bridge in, near Kursk. Uh, 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 mysteriously uh, going down. At what point do you have? Do you see the Russians really responding uh, over, with overwhelming force to this, or have they already done this and they really have no other options to respond? You know, clearly they know that some of this is, is sabotaged by Ukrainian forces or sympathizers. Um, do you expect them to do anything about it? I mean, I'm not sure if we're talking about the sabotage and territory they control. I'm not sure what they can do. They, I was actually surprised we haven't hadn't seen more of that in the first two months, particularly in Kherson's upper Asia. If you're talking about, no, no, I'm talking strike, about in, in Russia, in Russia. If you're talking about deep strikes in Russia, well, Ukraine's have been doing that with a mix of approaches, right? Some may be sabotage, some may be TB2 strikes because we're seeing TB2 shot down over Russia proper, right? So we can assume that's what they're doing there. Um, maybe one or two or with the remaining Toshka arsenal and what they can reach uh, with those uh, fairly inaccurate, but nonetheless pretty effective SRBMs. So you've seen the Russian military respond across Ukraine, targeting Ukrainian critical infrastructure too. And that's part of a response, but really it's part of a campaign. But what else can Russia do? Let's be honest. First, they're they're probably running pretty low on long-range precision guy weapons at this point, right? Surefire sign, they're fight, firing CDCMs, coastal defense cruise missiles, right, that have a land attack mode but aren't really meant for it. They're pretty expensive, pretty sophisticated missile against surface targets. Like, you're increasingly seeing them 
uh, use, w- use missiles that can hit ground targets but aren't really meant or optimized for that mission set. So I suspect they're starting to run low on cruise missiles because they have to have a reserve, both one for NATO and for nuclear employment missions, right? Whereas Ukraine is fighting an all-out war, Russian military probably has some bottom number that they have to keep in reserve for other fights and other missions. And the Russian Air Force, as you can clearly see, is supporting the overall campaign of Donbass, and I think is probably doing it better than they were fighting in the first month of the war. But probably most of Ukrainian airspace isn't contested, right? That's, that's, and I don't think they're going to venture far into it because then they're going to risk running into Ukrainian air defense or even Ukrainian aircraft, which are much more, probably much more operative at this point. So I'm not sure what the Russian military can do. The only big challenge here, Dmitry, right, is it's clear that there aren't going to be negotiations that go anywhere in, in the near term, probably even in the mid- medium term from my point of view. Uh, the big debate is, is Vladimir Putin going to look at the situation and declare a general state of war and enact national mobilization or not? If he does that, it doesn't automatically solve Russia's problems or change Russia's fortunes, but it's a very significant political decision and it will alter Russia's staying power in the conflict. One of the things he may leverage to do that is these sort of series of attacks on Russian territory, which is why I suspect Ukraine is not taking credit for them while continuing to prosecute them. Okay. Let's switch topics a little bit and and talk about the economy. Um, I wrote a long thread yesterday um, about the fact that the Black Sea blockade by Russia uh, is really devastating to Ukrainian exports. Ukraine uh, used to export about uh, over 130 million tons of goods per year. Um, today through rail, uh, they're hoping in a couple of months to get to just about a million uh, per month, uh, 12 million per year. So just a fraction of what they actually need. Uh, Nolan, I'm curious, what are you seeing sort of in, in day-to-day life uh, in terms of uh, impact on people, uh, both th- th- uh, from the economic devastation of the war itself, but also from this uh, devastating blockade? Uh, are people worried about their jobs? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of economic productivity uh, from the capital? Yeah, well, I think I'll start real quick with just saying, you know, during the, the height of fighting in Kiev, uh, it was just remarkable how the city's uh, sort of logistical process still functioned. Like, basically, the, ro- the entrance in the city was through the roads in the south and the railways are still open. But, you know, from my time in Kiev, I can say that we had more supplies here in the city than when I went to other places around uh, Ukraine during that period. Uh, they really, you know, you just saw kilometers long lines of, of uh, semi trucks flowing uh, into the city from the south every single day and it kept the city alive. Um, I think, you know, across Ukraine right now, there are some supply shortages uh, most the most pronounced one is is of gasoline across the country i think that's one thing that people are starting to comment on is it's hard to find gas um but as you know here in kiev you know i'm getting protein bars and coca-cola zero and all this, the very non-essential things that uh that are being still being brought into the country so the, you know the supply chain is, is still functioning 
but, you know, in your thread, you brought up a good point that moving forward, you know, Ukraine is effectively under a blockade by sea and by air. And so a very important um, step that needs to be taken with the assistance of Ukraine's foreign partners is to develop that ground infrastructure potential at the border, to, you know, come up with some solution to make it a faster process to regauge the trains going across the border. Um, because Ukraine, you know, you know, as we look forward, unfortunately, and I say this because, you know, we all want life to get back to normal here, but it looks like this could become sort of a bigger, badder version of the Donbass war, some sort of pseudo frozen conflict that could drag on for a long time. And if that's the case, then Ukraine's going to learn, have to learn how to, how to get, um, all of the supplies in by, by land, perhaps for, you know, months or God forbid years from now. So that's going to be a huge priority for this economy is to find a land solution to do that. Kind of ironic that, you know, this is a story that I'd love to write in the near term, but, you know, China had invested a whole lot of money in this country, building up the ports and roads and all these things, thinking that Ukraine is going to be some sort of hub for its one belt one road initiative. <laughs> and I think Russia really, uh, you know, squash that, that hope in the near future. Um, but yes, uh, the economy has definitely been affected. I think, you know, there's a certain momentum to the economy that's carried through to, till now. Uh, but I can say, like, you know, my wife's parents have both lost their jobs. And you're seeing a lot of people, you know, across the country suffering economic hardship. And it's just going to get worse as time goes on. And I think that if and Russia is, isn't is able the to government, achieve... Is the government paying unemployment um, right now for people that, that are losing their jobs? There is assistance, but you know how is that going to how is that going to last? And the, the economy is not generating enough to sustain that. You know, even just on the outskirts of Kiev, uh, visiting people who are trying to rebuild their homes, almost all the assistance they're getting is from volunteers right now. So, just as as an anecdote, that suggests to me that you know the government doesn't have the the funds available to both rebuild and fight the war at the same time. Um, so it, that's going to be a huge challenge for, for Ukraine. You know, Russia may not be able to achieve a decisive battlefield victory, but they can slowly bleed Ukraine's economy dry over time. And uh, so that's going to be another important role for Ukraine's foreign partners, for sure. All right. We have a listener question. Mike, maybe you can take this one. Uh, but if Russia does not succeed in the Donbass, as uh, seems more and more likely, um, what does it do? Um, how does it claim victory? Uh, how does it escalate potentially? Any, any thoughts on that? I know this is pure speculation, but uh, try to put yourself in, in Putin's brain. I mean, it depends on how we define success. If success is just capturing all of the political administrative territory of the Donbass, I think that's definitely very much in doubt, right? Uh, I think they will take make some gains, but then the big question is, will they be able to hold on to them? Because Ukraine has pretty good offensive options of its own later on. I think Russia will be pressed in either... Uh, declaring a political success without having captured most of the territory because they recognized the independence of DNR LNR. Well, they were a bit being coerced to the actual boundaries, but I think that's probably the lowest political threshold they have for trying to salvage something from uh, this debacle and, and try to spin it as a victory. 
So there's a good chance that if they're not successful, Putin will uh, reframe this as a larger conflict. I see a lot of, I'm trying to think the best word for it, um, uh, maybe maybe preliminary prepping of the information space in Russian media to try to say, hey, this is not really a Russia-Ukraine war. Ukraine is just a proxy in a larger Russian NATO war and that NATO is the real adversary, right? So if there is, if there is a second defeat that they suffer, they'll probably blame NATO for it. And then they, and then he might try to spin that into why a, a national mobilization is required. But there's a good counter argument as to why Russian population doesn't want to do that. I think the reason is straightforward. If Putin does that, he can no longer define victory down to whatever basically he wants. Now it has to be with fairly maximalist end goals and the political objectives ha- were going to be much harder for him to control in terms of what he could set. He's going to mobilize the country. He's going to have to promise, quite, I think, something quite more significant than it's just the Donbass. As far as the war goes right now, there's still options um, for Russian political leadership to define victory down. The big thing is everything I've seen suggests to me that Putin doesn't want to do that, that he intends to keep fighting. And that could be either because he doesn't understand the reality of the situation in terms of Russian forces and their prospects on the battlefield. Could be that he's being told that, but nonetheless, he believes that the Russian military will just win and persevere. Leaders of great powers often have this presumption that because they're in charge of such a great country, that they have these sort of unlimited resources and they might be able to win no matter the odds that they may not have a really good understanding of the relationship between uh, ends and means. Uh, or it could be that, you know, Putin actually believes that it could sustain this as a war of attrition and over time squeeze Ukraine economically, as we just discussed, because of the ongoing blockade and the damage to Ukraine uh, that's been done by the war, and, and assume that he could, you know, maybe steadily fracture the West if this war drags on uh, and eventually get some kind of settlement that way. You know, I don't know. I'm just offering kind of the range of options as always. Let's wrap up. Uh, we're at the top of the hour now. Um, Nolan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hope you stay safe um, there in Kiev. And uh, thanks again, Mike, uh, for coming on, on this uh, podcast once again and sharing your, your phenomenal views and insights into this war. And that's a wrap from us tonight, folks. Uh, Have a good night. Thanks for having me back on the show. And uh, it was good talking to all of you. And again, everybody was a fan of TB2. Please do not come yelling at me. (laughs) Duly noted. Thanks for having me on, Dimitri. Thanks, Nolan.